From Revenue Rhino, I'm Brad Hammond, and this is the Lifelong Customer Podcast. Welcome to the Lifelong Customer Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Hammond, and today I have Vicki with Crux OCM. Vicki, it's so nice to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a Absolutely. happy Friday. <laughs> oh, yeah, you too. So I'm really excited for today's episode. So Vicki, to kick us off, uh, can you tell me a bit about yourself as well as your company and what you guys are up to? Yeah, background about myself. Part of the story that's interesting, I guess, is I'm from like a very rural part of Canada in Newfoundland. So background, super, super remote upbringing, we'll say. And then I ended up going into chemical engineering. I worked labor in pulp and paper and then engineering in pulp and paper. And that experience led me to go into oil and gas, specifically in process control, which is what I really quite like. I know I need to know how to operate this asset before I can, can do anything. I took that into my thought process in oil and gas. And I trained as a control room operator for the Keystone Pipeline, which led me to where I am now as the CEO and co-founder of Crux OCM. That's awesome. I love it. So specifically, what are you guys doing? Who are your customers and then what do you do for them? Yes. Excellent question. And feel free to double click on anything here because I will go for the uh, industry jargon. Our heavy industrial, like critical infrastructure that powers our entire economy is operated in central control rooms. So think like NASA, like NASA control rooms. A lot of people aren't really aware of that. And that'll be whether grid control or, or pipelines or refineries or, or things that get the energy in whatever form it is to our homes and so that we can use it as consumers. So if you think about a NASA style control room, Inside of that, folks have an operating system. So you think like Windows on your computer or Apple operating system. So that for heavy industrial assets, multi-billion dollar critical infrastructure, uh, is typically called SCADA. So supervisory control and data acquisition or DCS, distributed control systems. So what we do, so that's the background and feel free to double click anywhere there. So what we do is we've created a layer that goes on top of that system, on top of that operating system. And what it does is it enables, think of like autopilot functionality. So you're not gonna get in a plane to fly from Houston to Calgary, since I'm the in, in, in the energy sector, without a pilot, but you're also not going to do it without autopilot software. Like That would seem sketchy. Yet our critical infrastructure that powers our entire economy does not have that co-pilot or autopilot. So that's, that is what we are building. Anywhere you'd like to double click for those, since it's, it is a, a bit of an obscure space. <laughs> Absolutely. So very interesting. So super highly critical stuff, very important. Uh, I imagine you're building a company in this space. How do you go about doing it? What's step one to, hey, we're like controlling all this critical infrastructure now? Yeah, that is an excellent question. So our the one customer that is public with us that I am allowed to, to say is Philips 66. So they are, on, I think they're 27 on the Fortune 100. So yeah, as an early stage company, how do you land customers like that? And is that essentially what, how do you do it? So I think that primarily goes back to my background of having that experience that I was touching on at the beginning here of really having that, that end user empathy in like product management talk and stuff, right? Like I, I really understand the end user's needs. And then because of that, building a company in the space was a lot more intuitive than I think it would be uh, for others who are like, Hey, I've done a market assessment. I see a gap in the market here. Like I'm going to tackle it. But that's maybe more, someone can think of that as like top down. I went bottom up if, if that makes sense. Does that answer Absolutely. the question? Yeah. yeah okay. I think so, for sure. 
so you build the product, then you land some early customers. And then what does that growth journey look like? Like, where are you guys at? And what do you see for the future in terms of growth? Yeah, because critical infrastructure, it's not exactly an easy place to get in. And there has to be um, significant level of trust, which we were able to foster based on our deep domain expertise. But yeah, as, as in terms of what that looks like, it, it has been a long road early on uh, because commissioning these types of systems critical infrastructure is called critical for a reason, does have to adhere to certain regulations. FIMSA is a regulatory body in the pipeline sector, so pipeline hazards control and, and safety administration. So making sure that we're adhering to all of that and making sure that in production, the software is only operating within constraints. It's the way that it's architected. It cannot go outside of those. That definitely took some time. Uh, we were able to get an early customer who was willing to go on that journey with us, which was fantastic and take that bet. So where we are from a company standpoint is we are post seed. So if folks are familiar, I, I get like for your audience, if folks are familiar with those stages of startups, post seed typically means you have a strong product market fit and are ready to start scaling. We are definitely at that point. However, What's also interesting about us is when it comes to heavy industry and customers, large enterprise customers like this, very few seed stage startups are you know, fully commercial in production with multiple product lines with one of those clients at this stage. And, and that is definitely where we are. So we are, we are on the super strong product market fit, massive proof that it works. <laughs> and now we're on the cusp of, all right, let's scale this thing. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm less familiar with the aviation industry, for example, but you use autopilot as an example. I imagine autopilot helps with safety and routing and all these number of things. What is, what, what's the end result that you're looking for and that you've probably, <laughs> I imagine, have seen in the early stage customers? Is it a safety thing? Is it a throughput thing? What are the end results of this? Uh, all of the above. So the way that like an easy way to think of automation is like just better, faster, stronger, right? It's, it's doing what people can do. It's just doing it more consistency, higher accuracy, uh, enabling, making sure that people aren't in the loop to make mistakes or making, having them have a more advisory role. So that's why I love the, that's why I love the people, like the planes analogy for this specifically is it's critical infrastructure. You still need people there. However, people need backup when it comes to these types of systems. I imagine at least in aviation, if you're a pilot, it's very tedious to have to control the controls like every single second, but obviously it'd be crazy to fly a plane and have no pilot. You need the pilot there, but I imagine it frees up the pilot's time to do more important things than to control the, the joystick or the yoke or whatever it's called. Well, and make sure that the pilot's fresh if something is going wrong, right? If you're going to get on like a 15-hour flight and there's no autopilot software and there's like a pilot that's just like holding on like this, controlling the entire way, when something's going wrong when you're landing, do you, do you feel confident that pilot is fresh and ready to go? If something's Absolutely. going wrong, like you really don't. So yeah, so I think, so, so sorry, yes. Now I'm back to your original question of what does it mean for end users and for clients in terms of value? So, so yeah, all of the above, like 95% of uh, heavy industrial accidents are uh, as a result of human error. So anything that can be done to automate those out, we see that in the pilots and planes situation as well. Like aviation accidents have gone down with uh, autopilot. That's really the initial shift that I was targeting of like, okay, let's, we need to make everything safer. But then out of that is the better, faster, stronger automation. And so what we're seeing with clients is a substantial uplift in, in high margin revenue. These types of 
critical infrastructure assets are a very large upfront capital investment. And then the way that they make money is they underpin them with long-term contracts for their customers. But that's on an assumption of a certain amount of utilization of those assets. Maybe that's 80 or 90%. Software like ours can get above and beyond that very consistently. What that means is that those clients can sell that volume at higher, much higher margins, which is fantastic and obviously very exciting. When you also combine that with efficiency, people forget this as well, but efficiency is green. So people are like, oh, but you're moving, you're moving more oil. That's so bad. Right now, 83% of our energy mix is still oil and gas. That is actually still forecasted to increase. We have to use the existing assets more efficiently unless we're going to start pricing ourselves out of our own energy market, which is not desirable for anyone. Absolutely. We still for sure need oil. And it it sounds like you're making it more efficient to use it. Yeah. So we actually have some early results as we're lowering emissions on existing assets. So a pipeline that has to use energy to move fuel, we're lowering about 10% of the emissions required to move the fuel, right? That's huge. I think our early studies were like, if we put this on every oil pipeline in North America, that's equivalent of about 300,000 cars off the road a year, right? Like it's so much. And, but people don't think of these things when they think of like the energy transition or making lowering emissions, right? It's, oh, oil is is bad, but there's so many ways that we can make it better today. Absolutely. And the world wouldn't exist without oil. Everything's made of it. Plastic. (laughs) (laughs) We got stuff a lot. (laughs) Oh, for sure. So have there been any interesting lessons learned as you've been on this journey of building a company, things you found, wow, this worked really well, or, oh, we tried this early on, didn't work, we pivoted. So many lessons. (laughs) So I don't think so many lessons in terms of what is typically talked about in startups with, oh, okay, you tried a thing and then you had to pivot, like you had to pivot your market or pivot your idea or pivot your offering. That didn't really happen to us because of the, the domain expertise, right? Like we knew exactly what we were building and why. Definitely a lot of learning around like how to position and, and what that actually being able to make the message resonate with clients. I'd say for myself, the biggest lessons have definitely been, I came from being a a junior engineer to the CEO of a venture capital backed company. And I'd never heard of VCs. I'd never heard of startups. I'd never heard of Silicon Valley. So my biggest bumps and bruises for sure are on the growing the team and the people management side. And I've definitely made some hiring mistakes. But when you're in those shoes, you're just, you're trying to make the the best decision you have with what you know at the time, and you don't know what you don't know. So it's a, a constant battle of trying to understand what you don't know. And I'd say those are the biggest learnings. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny how your hat that you're wearing changes as the CEO's organization grows. I think for us, it was early on about the product and being in the trenches and Now it's about empowering the team to do a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and what is it? What another founder said it to me and I was like, oh, you're so right. It's, you know how everyone on the team, like they get a job description when they apply for the job, like the CEO's job description changes every 18 months, but nobody tells you, (laughs) (laughs) you got to figure it out on your own. So that's also the fun part. Yeah, absolutely. You're doing some interesting stuff with content. I think I was just looking at your YouTube channel. You have some videos going out, all that. Tell me about your approach to that and how you decided to go about doing that stuff. So that is not common in our space. So I agree that is an interesting thing. So being venture capital backed, one of our excellent investors got us in contact with a marketing advisor, award-winning marketer kind of guy. Uh, He's fantastic. And so when he met me, he was just like, okay, 
your marketing strategy, you as an individual are very unique in this space. And so why not use you to spearhead the marketing to generate leads, right? And coming from an engineering background, that seems pretty self-serving and weird. And it was hard to wrap my head around at first, but it makes perfect sense, right? I'm, I'm not typically in this space. And so that kind of makes people look. And if making people look makes people engage with the content and that generates leads, that's fantastic. Who cares how we do it? Yeah, so what we started doing is first the, the old school ones were me with a whiteboard and an iPhone. And I just started creating videos around, okay, what is this industry? How does it work? What are some interesting facts about it that that people may not know? What is our products? What do they do? Yeah, so we have a fairly robust YouTube channel, but it's really funny. Like our industry doesn't play on YouTubes. We have barely any subscribers, but we put that content then on, obviously on our blog, on our website, and then we put it on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn's where we get loads of traction on the content, which is really cool. But yeah, in terms of a whole like older heavy industry Definitely not a marketing strategy I have seen with as, as a main marketing strategy that I've seen with other startups. It is unique for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, very unique. It's what prompted us to reach out to, to do That's this. Fun. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a good like point for others though that are targeting more established older industries and, and large enterprise clients is what are some what it, maybe do the same thing, right? There's creative ways to get people to engage. And when you're selling to large enterprise, there's there's going to be 30 influencers or 40 influencers for that one buyer. And how do you reach all of those people and, and create positive sentiment, right? Absolutely. What is one thing you wish you would have known before you became a CEO that you know now? One thing that I wish I would have known, probably the... I wish I would have known younger that that this job is a personality type and that I have the perfect personality type for it. And so I think it would have saved me a few years of like soul searching if I had known that people's individual skill sets, personalities, quirks can lend themselves very well to certain professions or certain callings and, and engineer wasn't mine. <laughs> it's still useful, but. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a certain personality type and it's one like way off to the right field of like, it has to be your life basically as, as an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. And, and you have to, there's, you need a lot of energy so like before I started the company, I used that energy climbing mountains and running marathons and things like that, backcountry skiing, all that good stuff. Yeah. So pivoting that energy into something that, that was very beneficial to my life and others' lives has been awesome. I love that. I was going to say building a company is like climbing Mount Everest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've climbed a lot of the Canadian Rockies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So as we wrap up, What's one piece of advice you have for those out there listening today? Yeah, actually, I think I'll tack on to that personality comment. Yeah, I think especially these kinds of roles where they're somewhat in the spotlight, people will put them on a pedestal and that's wrong. So I think the piece of advice is if you're thinking about doing something or thinking about making a change, go inside first, understand yourself, understand your motivators, understand your quirks, understand what really drives you. And that is work and will take a while, but that's how you'll end up doing something that's both meaningful and fun. Absolutely. Vicki, it's been amazing to have you on. Thanks so much for joining today and sharing all your wisdom. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.